The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. to the climactic scene from Mozart's opera Don Giovanni, where the statue of the commander comes to life and says, I'm here for dinner, Don Giovanni. You invited me. And it's time for you to repent and die. In the movie Amadeus, Salieri insists that this is Mozart resurrecting and attempting to exercise the ghost of his father, Leopold, who drove him so hard and whose memory had haunted him all his life. Why did Don Giovanni need to repent? What sin did he need to have forgiven? In a word, sex. Mozart's Don Giovanni is one of many examples of our subject today, the mythical literary figure Don Juan. From its earliest days as a popular legend through many instances in drama and poetry and fiction, the sexual conquistador Don Juan has been returned to again and again as authors and artists wrestle with the central paradox of human, and particularly male, sexuality. Men dream of becoming a Don Juan with partner after partner after partner. As Chris Rock might say, men are only as faithful as their options. But Don Juan's or Don Juanism has always been accompanied by a negative underside. There's something wrong about it, too. There are very few instances of Don Juan where there isn't some kind of reckoning at the end. But the forms of that reckoning have changed along with society. And even more fascinating... The reasons for that reckoning have changed as our views of religion and society and gender relations and psychology have evolved. We're talking about Don Juan today on the History of Literature. Holly, that's his song, Modern Day Don Juan, which is appropriate because we're going to spend some time on modern Don Juans. I'm interested in these literary myths, both for what they say about the past, how they started, and how they were used hundreds of years ago. We saw in our Faust episode that Faust was a real-life figure, a real Dr. Faustus, who ran around Germany tricking villagers into giving him money and pulling off magic tricks and alchemical experiments that made them think that he must have sold his soul to the devil. Don Juan doesn't have a real-life example, except 
Of course, he probably does. There's a Don Juan in every village and, and maybe in the beating heart of every man, especially in spring. Maybe not on the scale of Don Juan, though. We'll get there. Anyway, Buddy Holly, that was his second single, Modern Day Don Juan. It failed to reach the charts. But his next single did. That'll be the day. Number one. And the hits kept coming. Words of Love, Maybe Baby, Peggy Sue, Oh Boy, and then the tragic plane crash, and he was gone at the age of 22. Way, way too soon. We're sponsored today by the folks at Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Maybe check out Lord Byron there and his classic work, Don Juan. Try the reading by Jonathan Keeble. There's a review complaining about the way that he pronounces the main character's name, Don Juan. And the review says, it's Juan, it's Juan. How can I read this when the, the narrator can't pronounce a simple Spanish name like Juan? And look, I think you know by now that I hate affectation. I hate snobbery. If there's one thing that ruins literature for me, it's snobbery. It's like golf. My family plays golf. My grandfather, my father, huge golfers. And I used to play too. Not the the manicured greenery of a Hawaii or a Las Vegas where the green looks so odd in the middle of the desert. This isn't Florida or Pebble Beach I'm talking about. It's not a country club where there's exclusivity. I'm talking about playing golf in Hard Scrabble, Wisconsin, where land was cheap and the ground was kind of rocky and the fairways and greens were nice, but only at the right time of year. There's something very pleasurable about golf, about being outside. And you know why I stopped playing? Because there's something very irritating about golfers, about the golf marshals who go zipping around in those carts and enforce the rules. I can't stand those guys. They hate women and kids. I'm convinced of that. If you ever bring a new golfer out there on the course, someone whom you're trying to introduce to the sport to see if they'll fall in love with it, the golf marshals climb all over you. You'd think they would celebrate that, a new golfer, a new person, a new, a new potential fan of the sport, but no. They have their little rules and their etiquette, and I'm not talking about playing loud music or drinking beer, driving a cart in the green or anything like that. I'm talking about maybe it takes someone five putts to get the ball in the hole. I don't know. I don't want to play a sport where if someone takes a few extra seconds to work on their putting and everyone is smiling and, and enjoying each other's company, enjoying the recreation, I then have to go to the next fairway tee and see some old coot wearing a big hat and sitting in his golf cart like he's sitting on a throne, frowning at me and complaining that my group is slowing down play. There could be no one on the course, and the golf marshals still say that. You're slowing down play. Just tell them to pick it up and put it in their pocket if they can't putt any faster than that. And that's why I can't stand going to the golf course, that feeling that these mysterious other people have one right way of doing things. And these people, they cheat, they lie, they break every rule in the book, in golf and in life. But if you come out and you have someone who's not old and white and male, then suddenly the doors close. Suddenly, there are rules that must be obeyed. It drives me nuts. Okay, so I like golf. I don't like golf snobs. That rant has a point for this show because I like books and I like literature, but I can't stand the way a lot of people talk about literature. There, 
I said it. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes here, but it drives me crazy when people shut other people out. It's not yours, people. Shutter outers. It's not your private club. Books belong to all of us. We can talk about them and take them and use them and enjoy them, and we don't need you to lock us out, okay? What was my point? Ah, uh, yes. Iron and Don Juan. So, yes, it's pronounced Don Juan. We all know the Spanish, including Jonathan Keeble, the narrator. <laughs> Poor narrator, taking some shots on Audible. Here's the thing. Byron's Don Juan actually is Don Juan. That's just how it is. I know it makes no sense, and it's slightly offensive to, mispron- to mispronounce. <laughs> I just mispronounced the word mispronounce. Perfect. To mispronounce or Englishify, such an obvious word. That's a little offensive. It's also a little offensive to think that Jonathan Keeble didn't know that, didn't know how to pronounce Don Juan, just sort of screwed it up as Don Juan. But I'm not here to point fingers at Jonathan Keeble or at the critic of his. Who knows? I'm probably wrong about this and, and a lot more. Because trust me, a lot of people think I'm wrong about a lot of things, including literature. I get your emails. Thank you. But in the case of Byron and Don Juan, it is Don Juan. We have to pronounce it that way because Byron was writing poetry and it was in meter and the meter and the rhythms and the rhymes don't work if you say Don Juan. It has to be Don Juan. He rhymes it with true one at one point. But that doesn't mean that you're wrong for complaining about Byron or that you're somehow not smart or not worthy for not knowing that Byron's Don Juan was actually Don Juan. It's reasonable, much more reasonable than me starting out in life asking a professor about Proust. The look on his face. I thought he might might die of depression on the spot. I have to teach these kids asking me about Proust. Or the story I heard of the young author who was at a party with a lot of professors and writers who were there and all their references were flying over his head. And so, to look smart, he asked some people if they'd ever read Froude. And they hadn't. They had no idea who he was even talking about. And they felt stupid, and is what he thought. He thought they felt stupid and they left. So the next authors wandered over and to insinuate himself with them, this guy said, hey, you see those guys over there? Famous, right? Know-it-alls? And guess what? They've never even heard of Sigmund Freud. I'm Jack Wilson, by the way. Welcome to the podcast. Find more at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Some good anti-snobbery on those sites and on Twitter at WriterJack. Our friend Mike Palindrome is recommending a book a day for 10 years at Literature SC. That stands for Literature Supporters Club, of which... He is the president, or El Presidente. We have a club going here, too, kind of a History of Literature podcast club, I guess you could say. Listeners have been sending in their address. Well, first, they do something nice for the show. I can't even count the ways you could do something nice for the show. Write a review on iTunes. is us- That's the one I usually mention, and that's a the wonderful way to support the show. I love reading those reviews. But also, you could share the show on Facebook or email a friend and ask them to subscribe. Or subscribe yourself if you haven't already. doesn't really matter. Whatever way feels comfortable to you. And then send me an email with your address. Send that to jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. And I'll send you a special literary postcard for free. Let's read an email. Dear Jack Wilson, I am a 25-year-old primary school teacher living in London. 
I've always held a strong passion for literature. Shockingly enough, English is my favorite subject to teach. Well, <laughs> I wonder why that's shocking. Maybe because his students are asking him about Proust. And I find your podcast a cathartic and relaxing raft for my mind to float on as the exhaustion and stress starts to seep as the end of the term approaches. Some of my favorite authors include Steinbeck, Hemingway, Tolkien, Dumas, Dickens, Wolf, Tolstoy, and Dostoevsky. Although I have recently discovered the joys of Murakami and Zola. Two of my, I love that. The joys of Zola. Two of my favorite books are Les Miserables and Don Quixote. Although I know you're not the biggest fan. Can I just interrupt here and say that Mike was the one who crossed Don Quixote off the list? I've gotten more flack for that. Let's remember the spirit of the show of that episode. They're books you don't have to read. You can read them if you want. Just don't feel guilty if you don't. Oh, boy. I'm glad you like Don Quixote. Like Miss Rob and Don Quixote. You like the putter inners, the big ponderous tomes. Storytelling, lots of storytelling in those pages. Uh, back to the email. Will you be looking at any of these literary geniuses soon? I presume a Cervantes episode is off, is off the cards. Well, maybe not. Listener, maybe not. Maybe I need to redeem the show by digging into Don Quixote. Maybe I'll do that soon. Back to the email. As a Shakespeare nut, I particularly like your episodes regarding his work as well. Keep up the good work, Jack, and know that there is a very tired teacher in London sustaining himself through coffee, books, and the History of Literature podcast. Kind regards, Mike in London. Thank you, Mike. Wow. Up there with coffee. Well, I love teachers. I used to be one, and it's really my whole background. All my ancestors were teachers. I grew up with, surrounded by teachers, a long line of them. I grew up to the rhythms of a teacher's life. I think they are undervalued and underappreciated, and I'm very glad to know that I'm doing something to help out a teacher in London. Thanks for the email. Here's another one from Sean. Hi, Jack. Loving the podcast. I'm an English teacher and literature lover. I find it really inspiring. I was just wondering if you have a D.H. Lawrence episode planned. Thank you, Sean from London. Wow. Mike and Sean, teachers in London. And yes, I would love to do a D.H. Lawrence episode. That goes on the list. Here's a quick one from G. Hi, History of Literature. An audience from HK of Hong Kong. Just want to show my deep appreciation for your show, Smiley Face. Sometimes I even re-listen to them. <laughs> Say hi to Mike as well. Best regards, G. I love this. Another Hong Kong listener. <laughs> I love Hong Kong. Love having listeners in Hong Kong. And here's one from Dave. Hello, sir. Last podcast about the books we do not need to read was fabulous. I laughed out loud at your discussion with Mike. I was walking so other so other folks on the street who could not see my <laughs> sorry. I was walking so other folks on the street who could not see my white wires thought I was nuts. Each one of your ideas was an entire discussion in itself. He goes on to recommend a young adult series that sounds wonderful. I've ordered the first one, Heap House. Thank you, Dave. That was from Dave. I'm flattered and honored. These emails really make my week. I love hearing from everyone, and I do try to respond to each one personally. My poor interns. They would love to do this for me, but where's the joy in that? For me, I mean. The joy for me. The joy of letting 
them experience joy. Now I feel bad. How does everything turn into guilt so quickly? That's a good lead into our show, actually. That's basically the story of Don Juan. What if it didn't turn into guilt so quickly? What if all that lust and all those lovers, what if you felt no guilt, at least during your life? Should it? There's something wrong with you? You don't feel guilty about that? What if Don Juan feels no guilt at all? What do we think about that? One last email because, man, this one completely floored me. It gave me chills. Seriously, it gave me chills. It ran right through me. I don't think I've ever gotten an email like this that affected me this way. So let me give you some background. A lot of you emailed after the Jane Austen episode. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I felt a little anxious about that one, frankly, because Jane Austen is revered and I wanted to do justice to her. I didn't want to let her fans down. I didn't feel that way when talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example. (laughs) But Jane Austen, there are some hardcore fans out there. Anyway, I told the story of the family I knew in college with the four daughters and the one in particular who dragged me to a Christmas cotillion in the fancy suburbs of Chicago to avenge the honor of her sister. And I was from Wisconsin and I brought my friend and we were mystified by the whole thing. And yet these girls, the daughters, lived in this kind of Jane Austen fantasy world and they kept saying things like, who will be the Mr. Darcy? And you should come and be the Mr. Darcy. You'll be the Darcy. And I've never, this was 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, and I've still never gotten over that experience of the way Agatha, which was the name I called her, the way Agatha forced me to assume a role in their play, the one these sisters were devising for themselves. They had a script, but I didn't. And I could only shrug and say, well, if you think I'm Mr. Darcy, you're probably going to be disappointed. I'm Jack Wilson, and that's, that's about it. That's all you get. And here is one of the emails I received after that episode. Subject line, Darcy. Dear Jack, I listened to your podcast for the first time this morning on my cycle into work and really enjoyed it. I'm a huge Pride and Prejudice fan. Who isn't? I had to write to put you out of your misery and explain Agatha to you. She was Mr. Darcy. Oh, and this is the part where I got shivers. As soon as I read that sentence, I knew my emailer was right. The email goes on and explains everything perfectly. She was attracted to you, but disturbed by the fact that you were lower class and what that meant for her self-image. She was angry at herself for having feelings towards someone who did not meet her expectations for a lover in terms of social standing. Therefore, her recourse was, like Darcy, to pull you into a kind of dance whereby she demands some kind of loyalty from you, but in the meantime almost bullies you to help you understand that you're beneath her. She wanted to have you, but punish you at the same time for dragging her down to your level. She was trying to find a way to have her cake and eat it, to reconcile her feelings, get her man, but protect her self-image at the same time. She fancied you, trust me on that. Thanks, Jane. Oh, man. Jane, thank you. I have a whole new perspective on a strange passage in my life. So thanks to... Man, I love this, how people will use literature to help explain things. That's why we read, right? What a perfect explanation to the dynamic that was going on. So thanks to Jane, the emailer, and Jane Austen, and all the other Janes who are out there waiting to help me out. My guardian angels. 
Angels. Angels. Don Juan, up next. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We know the term. It's used in headlines and descriptions and rap lyrics. It's kind of flattering most of the time and kind of accusatory too. But where did all this begin? In literature, we can trace Don Juan back to a tragic drama, El Burlador de Sevilla, or The Seducer of Seville, which appeared in Spain in 1630. The playwright, Tirso de Molina, didn't invent the character, he was seen in popular legend before the play, but this is the play that started the use of Don Juan as a literary myth, which, as we defined before, means a character with a life outside its text. In the 1630 version, Don Juan has all the attractive qualities we generally associate with a Don Juan, vitality, arrogant courage, a sense of humor. He loves women, and women love him in return, and he's not discriminatory about the kinds of women he loves, older women, younger women, all women. Some versions of Don Juan show this differently. In some Don Juans, women are more or less dupes, drawn to him in spite of themselves. And frankly, I find this version a little boring. Women who see how good-looking he is and how charismatic, and bam, that's it. They can't resist. It always strikes me as a little too much of a male fantasy or a male view of women, what male wish women did or thought, or their Maybe not their wish fulfillment. Maybe they think that's actually what women do deep down. All the man needs to do is look the right way or wear the right cologne, and women are drawn to him like dogs in heat. That's not the Don Juan story exactly, but if there's too much of that in the version of Don Juan that you're putting forward, it makes Don Juan about as interesting as a beer commercial, at least for me. A better Don Juan is, is the Don Juan that changes for each woman, that he knows what they like and becomes what they need, what they want from him. He's a good listener. He's more sympathetic. I like this flavor of Don Juan because it has a central tension. Why should such a man be punished? We'll get to that in a moment when we look at the punishments that have been doled out to Don Juans over the years. There's yet another kind of Don Juan in which Don Juan is a great transgressor of social norms. 
He has no honor and no respect for the honor of the women he seduces or for their families. This Don Juan feels outdated to me, even though it might not be. I know this is still a dynamic family shame, for example. It's available in plenty of countries, including Western countries. But it's not as important to us as it was to the Spanish tragedy of 1630. That one, the first Don Juan, told the story that became a kind of template for a long time. The template Don Juan story. Don Juan seduces a girl of a noble family. Her father tries to avenge her, and Don Juan kills the father. Then, when he goes to see the father's tomb, he sees a statue of the father and flippantly invites it to dine with him. Sort of a chuckle. You were so angry, and now you're dead. Meanwhile, I'm still alive and still seducing women. Well, the statue doesn't like that so much. It shows up at dinner after all, which is another way of saying, Death is here, Don Juan. And Don Juan refuses to change or repent, and so he ends up in hell. That's the punishment for Don Juan uh, in the early plays, and it was repeated through many versions in Italy and France and Spain for the next two or three centuries. Eternal damnation. That's the punishment for the life of sin that Don Juan leads. Sex with women, unmarried sex, adulterous sex, dishonorable sex, based sometimes on lies. That's the worst feature of Don Juan, I think, is when he lies to achieve his aims. I don't condemn someone to hell for having sex, whether or not they're married. Personally, that's my view. But I don't like the lying. It reminds me too much of those horrendous cases where doctors sexually abuse their patients or someone pretends to be a doctor. Something like that. There's no consent there, legally. At least that's how courts have ruled. Anyway, that's a topic for another day. We're still with Don Juan on his march to hell. You can see how the society of Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries were eager to put the sinner in hell. The church wanted to control the sexual lives of the citizenry. Don Juan thumbed his nose at that and gave in to impulses that, oh, so many people have felt in oh, so strong a way. And people had absorbed the lessons of the church. They too saw hell as a natural outcome for such a sinner. And it wasn't just the soul at stake, it was society. Parents didn't want their daughters running off with a Don Juan. It's noticeable that Don Juan doesn't just repent. Why not? Live a life full of pleasure? Then when death knocks, or in this case, shows up at dinner, you just repent your sins, punch your ticket to heaven, and die happily. But Don Juan refuses to repent. That tells us something interesting about the character, but also about the rules of society. That wouldn't be good enough, would it? If you're trying to stop sin and licentiousness, you need to show the full punishment of eternal hellfire. Don't give him a happy first act and a happy second act. It was a big problem for the church. What do we do about this? We want people to repent. We want to show God's forgiveness. On the other hand... It's kind of an easy way out. You could sin all your life and then cleanse yourself of sins right at the last moment. A lot of people were living that balancing act, that high-wire act. There's also a tragic element here in the first tragedy, the first Don Juan play. The construction of a good tragedy, as Aristotle pointed out, and we talked about early on in the History of Literature podcast, the construction of a good tragedy requires the character's main trait to result in the character's downfall. It's not a tragedy if Don Juan repents, and it's not consistent with his character. As a tragedy, to be a successful Aristotelian tragedy, the plot must work in a different way. 
Don Juan is a transgressor, an unrepentant, defiant transgressor all his life. He chooses sin over goodness, and he chooses it to the very end, and so he winds up in hell. I wonder if they address this to women at all, these early plays. Women, don't take Don Juan into your bedroom. You'll be condemning this lovable rogue to hell for the sake of his soul as well as your own. Don't fall for his honey-laden trap. But there's something about the pleasure-seeking Don Juan that seduces us, too. He's more fun. He's more like us. He's more human. It's kind of like John Milton's famous poem, Paradise Lost, where Satan steals the show. He's much more compelling. Jane Austen. Yes, Jane Austen. Now that we started with her, we may never leave her behind because I'm reading her letters now and they are fascinating. Jane Austen went to see a version of Don Juan. She loved it. She loved the character. She mentions it a couple of times in her letters. Fanny and the two little girls, this is a quote, Fanny and the two little girls reveled last night in Don Juan, whom we left in hell at half past 11. (laughs) The girls still prefer Don Juan, and I must say that I've seen nobody on the stage who has been a more interesting character than that compound of cruelty and lust. End quote. That's wonderful. A compound of cruelty and lust. And Jane Austen, you could see the novelist Jane Austen thinking, this looks like charisma, but it's cruelty. It's just a compound of cruelty and lust. And how do I set forth a man with that kind of cruelty and lust? How can I shave down some of the rougher, more blatant edges, make it more subtle, but get that interesting part of that character into a social setting that would fit in with my books. Excellent stuff. Now, there were some famous Don Juans in the theater on the stage all the way from the first version through Moliere in France and Carlo Goldoni in Italy and Alexander Dumas and Thomas Shadwell. There was a famous version in the mid-19th century by a Spanish playwright named Zoria in which Don Juan asks for and receives a pardon which is an interesting take on the Don Juan story. One imagines it was designed to give the audience a happier ending, but also to demonstrate the goodness of God. Even George Bernard Shaw in his 1903 play, Man and Superman, has Don Juan as a character. And he's been prominent in classical music too, with Mozart's opera being the most famous, but also Strauss. Kierkegaard wrote about Don Juan, and in the 20th century, so did Camus. And so did Anthony Powell, who compared Don Juan with Casanova in his work, Casanova's Chinese Restaurant, which gets, gets some credit for its title alone. Don Juan also inspired one of my favorite literary headlines of all time. Philip Larkin, the mopey English poet who liked small pleasures and celebrated simple traditions and looked like the stereotype of a librarian, and in fact was a librarian at the University of Hull. Well, it turned out, After he died, it was discovered that he had had a few affairs and had lived a much more daring life than what had come through in his poems and his public persona. And when his biography came out, some unnamed genius at a book review, maybe it was the London Times, London Review of Books, I can't remember. One of them gave the review the headline, Don Juan in Hull. So perfect. So we have two more things to cover. One is the famous poem by Lord Byron, and the second is a look at our modern-day views of Don Juan and Don Juanism. 
There are six poets commonly regarded as the giants of English romanticism, Blake, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Keats, Shelley, and Byron. As a poet, Lord Byron is probably the least accomplished of them all, but he might be the most fun, and he's probably the most energetic. His poem, Don Juan, Don Juan, he called it epic satire, and it's full of gusto. It's like eating meringue. It's devilishly good. It goes down easy. It's your favorite part of the dish. And after a while, it kind of tires you out. After you've eaten a certain amount, you realize you kind of miss the heaviness of the pie. It's also not a poem that's really written for us. It was written of its day, the way tweets and blogs and Facebook posts are. Some of the targets are current enemies or, or fashions. It's still enjoyable, and don't get me wrong, it's good poetry, but it must have felt scandalously vivid at the time. And by good poetry, I mean it has a kind of verve. It uses a rhyming scheme, eight lines of 10 or 11 syllables. It's called Ottava Rima. And the rhyme scheme is A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C. Hear that? A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C. The C, C is like a punchline. A punch, literally a punch. It packs a punch, and that's how Byron uses it. Byron was called famously mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And that's, that's how the poem feels. You get a sense of complete freedom on the part of the poet. Here's someone who breaks rules. Here's someone who loves holding up some stuffy old tradition to the light, then throwing it to the ground and crushing it under his boot, cackling like a madman as he does so. And so in Don Juan, he finds his great subject, or at least the one great through line that lets him talk about whatever he pleases. I can't stop comparing Byron with a blogger. I don't know why exactly. Don't send me hate emails for this. Maybe it's because it feels like he's getting things off his chest the way a very good blogger might today. One Otava Rima, one stanza might be about philosophy, another about gender relations, a third might be about poetry. He'd have been a terrific blogger, a great point of view, an infectious spirit, and a great facility with the language. Let's see a few. Let's, here's how Byron starts things out, taking on the sacred cows or the literary lions of the day, Wordsworth, Coleridge, and Robert Southey and the men known as the Lake Poets. Starts out, Bob Southie! Exclamation mark. <laughs> right there. Not some kind of weighty, ponderous uh, Robert Southie. I now turn my attention to Robert Southie. He starts out, Bob Southie! Exclamation mark. You're a poet, poet laureate, and representative of all the race. Although tis true that you turned out a Tory at last, yours has lately become a common case. And now, my epic renegade, where are ye at with all the Lakers in and out of place? A nest of tuneful persons to my eye, like four and twenty blackbirds in a pie. Which pie being opened, they began to sing. This old song and new simile holds good. A dainty dish to set before the king, or regent, who admires such kind of food. And Coleridge, too, has lately taken wing, but like a hawk encumbered with his hood explaining metaphysics to the nation. I wish he would explain his explanation. You, Bob, are rather insolent, you know, at being disappointed in your wish to supersede all warblers here below and be the only blackbird in the dish, and then you overstrain yourself, or so and tumble downward like the flying fish, 
gasping on deck because you soar too high, Bob, and fall for lack of moisture quite a dry, Bob. And Wordsworth, in a rather long excursion, I think the quarto holds 500 pages, has given a sample from the vasty version of his new system to perplex the sages. Tis poetry, at least by his assertion, and may appear so when the dog star rages, and he who understands it would be able to add a story to the Tower of Babel. You gentlemen, by dint of long seclusion from better company, have kept your own at Keswick, and through still continued fusion of one another's minds at last have grown to deem as a most logical conclusion that poesy has wreaths for you alone. There is a narrowness in such a notion which makes me wish you'd change your lakes for ocean. <laughs> oh, all that great fun. Here's Coleridge with his dense metaphysics and Byron cuts through all that. I wish you'd explain your explanation. Is that a perfect line? For some <laughs> to take down Coleridge and Wordsworth with the prelude. Well, for Byron, that's a vasty version of a system that perplexes the sages. It's poetry by his assertion. I wish you'd change your lakes for ocean. It's refreshing and engaging. You hear the conversational style, but yet it's still fitting the, the structure of the poem. And he's saying, don't listen to these pontificating bores. Come ride with me. We'll go on an adventure. We'll get at some ideas, too, along the way. And we'll give you plenty of, of interesting rhymes and fun wordsmithing. But we'll do so more in the style of novelists like Henry Fielding and Tobias Smollett. We'll go save Greece and laugh along the way. And all those pseudo-philosophical poets agonizing by the lakes, well, screw them. In another place, he says, Thou shalt believe in Milton Dryden Pope. Thou shalt not set up Wordsworth Coleridge Southey. Because the first is crazed beyond all hope. The second drunk, the third so quaint and mouthy. <laughs> Great stuff. It draws us in, seduces us. And our subject today is Don Juan. Byron's Don Juan is interesting. He's not the seducer. He's easily seduced. That feels like a modern twist. Not quite as modern as we might like it today. It's almost 200 years old, after all, being published from 1819 to 1824. But making the women the seducers, that's still kind of a male fantasy, but at least it gives the women something more to do, some more agency. At least it takes away the idea that Don Juan is a liar or a cheat or insufficiently honorable. He's someone grabbing life and trying to squeeze it for all it's got. Things are just happening to him. Pleasant things, pleasurable things. He's a swashbuckler, and not just in life and love, but in poetry and things of the mind, ideas. That's what you come away with when you read Byron's Don Juan, anyway, Don Juan. Time to start reading more books and doing more things and living a more daring life. Byron himself had kind of a movie star fame. He had a lot of lovers. He wrote a ton of poetry, and he became a Greek hero by fighting against the Ottomans for the cause of Greek independence. He was beset by scandal and debts, and yet he plunged into project after project, adventure after adventure, and he died at the young age of 36. In this poem, though, he's full of life. He's so energetic, even when he's talking about the poem. Here he is in a letter 
describing his plan for the plum, his plan, I put that in quotes, describing his plan for the poem. You ask me for the plan of Donnie Johnny. <laughs> oh man, Byron would have been really funny, fun to know. You ask me for the plan of Donnie Johnny. I have no plan. I had no plan, but I had or or have materials. You are too earnest and eager about a work never intended to be serious. Do you suppose that I could have any intention but to giggle and make giggle? A playful satire with as little poetry as could be helped was what I meant. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> In another, after he's finished writing the fifth canto, he writes, quote, The fifth is so far from being the last of Don Juan that it is hardly the beginning. I meant to take him the tour of Europe with a proper mixture of siege, battle, and adventure, and to make him finish as a Nacharsis Klutz in the French Revolution. I meant to have him made, I meant to have made him a cavalier servente in Italy, and a cause for a divorce in England, and a sentimental, werther faced man in Germany, so as to show the different ridicules of the society in each of these countries, and to have him and to have displayed him gradually, gâté and blasé as he grew older, as is natural. But I had not quite fixed whether to make him end in hell or in an unhappy marriage, not knowing which would be the severest. End quote. You see why Byron was mad and bad and dangerous to know, and also why he was very, very popular. The women as seducers. That's a modern idea, right? If you were going to modernize Don Juan for our era, we might... Just make him a female. That's got some possibilities. Lena Dunham can play her, our Don Juanita, or Amy Schumer. And we can make our project about slut-shaming and expose sluts. <laughs> and expose slut-shaming for the negative that it is. It's a double standard when we praise men or we, we wink at men for who are sowing their wild oats, but to blame women for the same behavior. That's true. It's been true for a long time. Maybe, maybe that version of Don Juan or Don Juanita is not as edgy as it would have been 20 or 40 years ago. But it's still important, and it would still resonate with people. But actually, the modern-day versions of Don Juan have tended to take a different path. Here's how we can think about the change between historical Don Juan figures and current Don Juan figures, modern-day Don Juans. It's a move from Don Juan in hell to Don Juan is hell. Here's a Don Juan, a famous one, Sam Malone of Cheers, as he listens to Diane Chambers describe a paper she's written about Don Juanism. She's used Sam Malone, Sammy, the playa. Do people, do people need a description of Sam Malone? Maybe they do. Cheers hasn't been on for a while, so Sam Malone is an ex-baseball player who now owns a bar, and he's kind of a hero to all the gang, the gang of losers who congregate at the bar, because he's the one who has an ability to score with women, and I put score in quotes. That's not my word choice, that's to give you the million, the, sorry, the milieu of the place, of Cheers, the bar. The show, which was very popular in the 80s, is too smart and too modern to just leave things there. 90% of the time, Sam Malone's Don Juanism is played for laughs. But 10% of the time, we see the negative effects too. But that 10%, the downside of being Don Juan, it's not about Sam going to hell, or the morality, or the decision of whether to repent. It's not about the honor of the women or their families. 
It's about Sam. In this episode, which is actually called Don Juan is Hell, Sam's on-again, off-again girlfriend, the waitress Diane Chambers, has written a thesis on Don Juanism, and she's used Sam Malone as her case study. The professor, her professor, doesn't believe that that Sam, that such a figure as is in the paper, could possibly be real. So she invites the whole class to see him in person. Sam thinks he's the hero of the paper, and he's excited to show off in front of them until Diane takes him aside. You didn't read this, did you? Didn't have to. I lived it. Sit down. Please. Trevor is the image of the arrested adolescent, entirely self-oriented, still intimidated by the women around him and attempting to prove himself superior to them. Through sexual conquest, he can, for a time, quell his constant fears of inferiority and failure. Indeed, the idea of a non-sexual relationship is completely foreign to him. As the years pass and his physical attractiveness diminishes, he'll be doomed to a life of loneliness, and despair, unable to give or receive love. Is this really how you feel about me? This is my clinical view of you. As a woman, I might have felt something different than I feel as an academician. Makes my life seem so cheap and pathetic. Sam, you're reading things into this. Like here, where it says his life is cheap and pathetic? That's our view of Don Juan today. Sad and lonely, his life cheap and pathetic. He's overcompensating for the loneliness. His lust and his licentiousness are all to fill the holes in his personality. His fear of commitment, his hatred of himself. He's doomed to a pathetic end as his looks fade. Is this where we still are? Is that There's something moral about that stance too, isn't there, that we're assuming that Don Juan is unhappy deep down, assuming that we know what's going on inside him. In 2013, Joseph Gordon-Levitt directed and started a movie called Don John. In that movie, he plays a sex addict, a Jersey boy addicted to porn who can't face reality, so he masks it with sexual encounters and porn, lots of porn. He even prefers porn to sex because it's easier for him to lose himself in porn. He hates himself, and he's pathetic and lonely. It's how we've viewed Don Juan for quite some time now. And what happened? Critics hated the movie. What a cliche. That was the the common criticism. This is boring. There's nothing new. You're not telling us anything we don't already know about sex addiction or Don Juan. Sex is strange for us. We try to be tolerant today. We try not to judge We want men and women to have healthy, consensual sex free from guilt. We know there are people out there who are terrified of other people having sex, and those people tend to be moralists and somewhat frightening and have some hang-ups themselves. But where does that leave Don Juan or Don Juanita? They can have sex, can't they? Sure. But every night with a different partner? Even if we don't say that's immoral, it does seem to have a tinge of loneliness to it. And even though it's preachy to say, you're unhappy, you're just covering up for a hole in your personality, you're afraid to commit, 
Someone might say that about having sex five times with five different partners over a course of five years. Well, who are we to judge? Where's the scale? Where's the where's the point where it becomes our job to say that, oh, well, that's that's too much. That's just loneliness. You're just covering up for some some deep seated need or some some hole in your personality. Maybe that person is perfectly happy with themselves. I'm not saying always. I'm saying it's a possibility. And we should respect that too. Nobody wants to hear that their psychology is predetermined and knowable and traceable back to some root cause that may or may not actually be true. And yet, and yet, and yet, is it really happiness to sleep with a thousand sexual partners? Five thousand? Here's where I think we're headed with Don Juan. I think we're headed toward the idea that sexual partners are good, consensual sex is fine. And for a Don Juan, the problem isn't morality, it isn't family honor, and it isn't necessarily some deep psychological hole. The problem for a Don Juan is that relationships are rewarding, but they're also difficult to get right. They take a lot of communication. That's true of a platonic friendship. A friendship is hard to get right. Throw in sex and it's even more difficult. It's really, really hard to be on the same page with another human being, especially when sex is part of the deal. A single liaison might take a lot of thought to get right, a lot of work, a lot of compassion and an effort to make sure that there aren't hurt feelings. Some partners want, might want more from you and some might want a little less. Some might want that call the next day or the apology or the happy birthday a week from now. Some might feel bad that you didn't call again or that you immediately jumped into bed with someone different. Or you might feel like something's been left unsaid or or you might be dissatisfied with the way that, that things ended, the way the morning went. It's hard work, all those feelings out there, and that's just for two people. Now double that and double it again and again and pretty soon... You're up to 16 liaisons and more. Every liaison adds another complication, another fragile relationship to get right. It seems inevitable that you won't please everyone, right? You can be impervious to everyone around you, all their needs, all their frustrations and disappointments. You can just cut yourself off from all that emotion. But then you're cutting yourself off from what makes relationships fulfilling, Emotion, feelings, sharing, respecting, valuing. I'm not saying that monogamy is the only way. I'm saying we know how to live. We know how to live now. We're not just animals or robots looking for mates. We know there's a whole package of feelings involved when two humans spend time together, especially if there's romance and love and sex involved. All those feelings looking for a place to land, a place to land gently. And Don Juan isn't there to land with them, and that's the problem. The warm human feelings are reaching out like hands, reaching for another hand to clasp. But Don Juan isn't there to clasp it because Don Juan is missing. He's missing, and he's missing out. That's 
going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Screenwriters, feel free to use that idea in your next version of Don Juan. You can't do worse than Don John, frankly, although Julianne Moore keeps everything from being a complete waste of time. My thanks to Lord Byron today. I love Byron. Hail Muse, etc. What, what a great line. That's in Don Juan. So much fun in there. And my thanks to you, dear listeners. I love getting those emails from you, so keep them coming. And send me your address, and I'll send you the postcard. I got a new shipment in, so there are plenty more to go. We'll be back next time. I think uh, Mike Palindrome will be here, so set your phone guns to subscribe and tell all your friends to get ready to download. Some more great episodes are in the works. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>